our political technology, like how we think about organizing society and controlling ourselves, uh, that it's possible we're not making moral sense of these uh, technologies, that we're, we've created these incredible things, but we haven't created the language or the myths or whatever it is uh, to make sense of these things and understand where the limit should be. And a big part of his remedy is face-to-face conversation, as he, he pulls from Judaism and Christianity, truly bearing witness to somebody right in front of you. And ironically, I think it's the very technology Jardine's questioning and it's not always face-to-face, but the podcast world has grown by leaps and bounds as you get more diversification in the news. Mm-hmm. And when I listen to somebody like Dan Carlin, it really is somebody in my ear while I'm going about my life kind of saying, hey, there's all this history that came before you. Uh, these things have incredible weight to what you're doing with your own life now. And you should learn about these things. That whether it's Alexander or Oppenheimer building the bomb, they bring up the constant question of have we reached our, our limits, in particular with the bomb. And uh, you watched last night this new, this what's well, fairly new, it's a documentary on Amazon Prime simply called The Bomb. Mm-hmm. And it brings up that question of okay, we have this technology, I mean, several megaton explosions out of a single weapon. And yet it sends everybody sort of, at first, everybody's excited about it, but then it sends everybody into second-guessing, what have we done? And I think the modern political world, especially geopolitics, has been shaped by that technology and us trying to make sense of it. Like, most of the big movements in recent political history have been worried about nuclear proliferation, have been... Worrying well, right now, Trump with North Korea. That's what the whole argument's over. That's what Iran and the United States, that's the whole argument's over. And when I bring up that, that thought of have we reached our moral limits and be able to explain our technology, what immediately comes to mind for you? Are we asking the right questions? Hmm. Like the focus of the questions. Is it about creating power? Keeping power? Is it about power at all? And that could, that could apply to weapons, that could apply to warfare, that could apply to just powering your own home. Yeah. But for me, as you mentioned, you said we were at the cusp of these things. Yeah. We're asking all of these questions, but are we asking the right questions? And there's so much history involved, there's so much information out there to unpack that it's easier to discuss in broad strokes but I, f- I fear that we won't get the accuracy or the answers that might help us the most in the long run. Well, and so you have to be almost more discerning these days. Either take, like when I read the news or I'm reading stories or ancient texts, you have to take it as myth, which mm-hmm. isn't to say it's so false and unuseful. Myth is, I think a lot of science sometimes is myth. It's the best possible explanation we have. Now, science has more rigorous demands than, say, some ancient Greek or Persian myths. But you either have to take it as a myth and that, okay, so far this is a fairly good explanation or it's getting at something true. Or you have to be incredibly skeptical and discerning because it's so easy to craft a story these days uh, with all the technology we have. It's like fans watching a, a replay, official replay call in a football game. 
And they're still going to, even when the video evidence is clear, it's not that clear. People see what they want to see. People do see what they want to see. That's a really good point. When we're asking these questions, when we're thinking about these things, maybe this is just my opinion, but I think it's important to remove the ego of self from the scope of the answers that you find. Because, as you said, people see what they want to see. Now, I don't have Facebook anymore. That's a smart move on your part. I am missing out on the hottest of takes, but I'm, I'm happy to do that forever, in yeah. fact. But if, if you take the ego out of these things and you just take these answers as they come, and you look at what you have in front of you, if you're not going in with a particular focus, if you're going in as, well, dare I say, yourself, yeah. and you see what you want to see, Someone else is going to see what they want to see. And if you can't reach a similar conclusion or a conclusion to where you can work together on something, then you find yourself at a crossroads. Well, and it's often uh, services as like a prison you carry with you. That, that ego, that, and it could be something that was developed early on in childhood. This is the way it is because it's the way it is. Um, and something I like to ask people, do you think if you were born in, say, Saudi Arabia, that you would be a Muslim? You most likely would be if you're raised in that society. There are sort of constraints that people start to take personal pride in, the things that are handed down. And what I try to do in my own life is not completely, and I because I have done this in, to my detriment, don't, don't just completely throw away traditions. Right. But you should question them and be like, okay, what's the what's the deeper meaning for me in that I can go on and create something new? And it's John Stewart was saying this the other day on the Louis C.K. stuff, is I had to rabbi it a little bit. Ask the question from all different sort of perspectives and put away my pride. Because Stewart was saying, I'm, I was raised by an uber-feminist mother. Like, I felt bad for being a boy. That's how hardcore she was. And you're going to tell me I'm a bad guy because one random person said I didn't believe them immediately when they called out Louis at some random Q&A? I'm a good man. Leave me alone. Yeah. And, and then he said I had to put that ego aside. And I had to re-examine, okay, maybe I am part of some system that has put this under the bed, so to speak. It's uh, not allowed people to sort of come up and, and talk about these things openly. Now, with... The, and it's questions always, because mythology and our most basic important stories always deal, I think, life and death. Like birth, rebirth, and then death. And there's something about, you mentioned crossroads, the uh, atomic bomb. There was actually a crossroads event where the Navy... It was called Crossroads. Yeah, and the Navy wanted to essentially show that the A-bomb couldn't destroy naval ships. Right. They they were worried that the Air Force had all the power since they had the nuclear bombs and they wanted to show. And they, the, the documentary made it seem like it was an ego thing because this general who had never actually served, I'm sorry, Admiral, had never actually served on a ship. Hmm. He was worried that he might be losing his influence, his power. Apparently he had made all his money by selling shoes. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, 47% of the military budget was going to the Air Force and LeMay and uh, the newly founded Strategic Air Command. And it, is a, it was a point of sort of hubris and pride that the Navy can handle anything to the point where it really is the spectacular, the first bomb that goes off in the sky above these Navy ships. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the waves over 
overturn some of the ships, but most of the ships are still floating when everything's said and done, and people watching for Fargo, oh, that's not that impressive. Yeah, they, they weren't impressed by the size of the Flash. They, they all had safety goggles, mind you, because yeah. the Flash could blind you, literally sear your retinas, and they weren't impressed by it. And they thought, you know what, we can decontaminate these ships, we can clean them off. Heck, we'll even sail them home. And that's where the Carlin, Dan Carlin aspect of this, where he says, imagine Genghis Khan or Caesar or Alexander the Great with this weapon. They would probably use it. Frequently. Frequently. And so you're putting in the hands of Truman, as he called him, this haberdasher, this guy who's not some political sophisticate. He's definitely an everyman, was a VP, didn't even know about the bomb until after FDR dies. And so you you have this historical moment where one person, pretty much breaking our constitutional system in many ways, has the ability to bring life or death among thousands, if not millions of people in a flash. And yet, most Americans that say, like the crossroads of Renegade, eh, that didn't impress me. That didn't entertain me. That's not that wonderful. You're like... Now that we have the historical perspective, it's like, you fools. Yeah. This is probably the biggest thing in human history. And yet they bring, to your point, they bring to the table this ego and their expectations of what society, this sort of consumer society. And I'm a market, free market pig. But I can accept that sometimes people um, start acting like petty, little petulant children when it's like, my computer doesn't work. And I've been there. I think we all have. But it's that consumer mindset of everything should always work. And you can't apply that type of thinking to something like an atomic bomb. You have to really step back. And in the case of these naval officers and this admiral, they're like, oh, the ships are still floating. They actually put Navy sailors on these ships. And it's like, well, guys. uh, A doctor quickly shut that down. An army doctor actually quickly shut that down. He said, this is still really contaminated. These are... The ship is now irradiated because yeah. the water is irradiated. And they thought, we'll decontaminate the ships by hosing them down right. with irradiated water, making them even more irradiated. So they, that, was, that, that first bomb was called Abel. Mm. And the second bomb was not going to be launched from the air. It was going to be blown up underwater. That was called Baker. There was a third bomb, Charlie. They didn't get to Charlie. Because Baker... That, somehow I have never seen that image. No, that, that was incredible. 10,000 feet of water? It this pillar of ocean. Just right. It is something out of mythology. It, it really is. It is. It's like, whoa. How, that's possible. And it still, I think, baffles people today. And one thing Carlin always hits on is, are we losing that memory of things like the World Wars and the Armageddon that was? Of the power and capacity of thermonuclear weapons at this point because you and i grew up in this world since the 80s the late 80s and it's always been a fact of our existence Mm -hmm. that these weapons are out there but everybody seems to have gone along their merry way it's not the same terror as i think the in the 60s with the height of the cold war we didn't we you and i growing up did not have what our parents had which was bomb drills nuclear bomb drills and that leaves a really big impact an imprint that's a 
I want to say a physical manifestation of the sword of Damocles that is hanging over people's heads. We didn't really have that. We had the doomsday clock, but since its inception, it was at seven minutes right. to midnight. I'm not sure what it's at now. I'm pretty sure it's probably like a minute to midnight or so, given the tensions with North Korea. But that, for us, is really our only physical manifestation of, you know, holy crap. Yeah. Well, and it has to, because Americans were so empowered. I mean, really, there's this writer named uh, Garrett Garrett. Interesting name. Um, He talked about America's complex of fear and vaunting. So we vaunt, we beat our chest, we're the greatest nation ever in the whole world, and we're still the most badass on the block, and we'll kick your butt because we have the best military, and our economy's awesome, our culture's awesome. Yet at the same time, after all that vaunting and beating and boasting, of the, beating the chest and boasting, Americans will turn around and go, ah, scary mouse, I'm scared. And it's, I think, this obsessive uh, need to control, which has been to Americans' benefit. You know, we can always strive for something better. It is that sort of... Uh, quixotic that Don Quixote that I'm going to accomplish things and remake the world correctly but if you look at probably the greatest nuclear threat it's not Iran or North Korea it's Pakistan and India and we don't have any control over it like they if they chose to go into a nuclear exchange it could create a nuclear winner and there's nothing no matter how many people you vote for it is something literally beyond your and my control for certain, but most people's control. It's up to the people leading those countries. And again, it makes you step back and say, man, the Pandora's box has been opened. Like, is it, are we going to have one, somebody, a madman? And it's what all these people have worried about. And I think it's why people worry about the Iranians so much. Are you going to have somebody who wants to bring on the apocalypse or just doesn't care, who is like an Alexander the Great? would use these weapons and that feeling of powerlessness i see why american foreign policy western foreign policy has been so devoted to nuclear non-proliferation um and in many ways that's what gorbachev saw when he met with reagan and gorbachev finally met and were like this is insanity mad is madness yeah and that's something that those these other nuclear powers they didn't really have that concept of mutually assured destruction. So I I really think a lot of Americans, perhaps even Russians at this point, are whispering to the Indians or the people or the leaders of Pakistan and they're saying, let me tell you about mutually assured destruction. This doesn't end well for anybody. And that precipice right there, you stop at the end of that precipice. Mm. You don't want it to end well for anybody. You want the threat to keep people off the, the gas pedal, so to speak, keep hitting, keep from hitting that red button that mm-hmm. ends a lot of lives very quickly and for a very long time. Because once you drop a nuke, you can't really go back and no. rebuild for a while. No, you can't. <laughs> and like, yeah, they're, when something's irradiated, it's... You have to wait until the radioactive material reaches half-lives and it slowly gets down to where it's i don't want to i don't want to say healthy for human inhabitants but you're not going to get cancer and die within three days yeah well and it makes me think of do you remember that video i think nat geo put together a while ago where they showed images of modernity to a primitive tribe 
and he was showing him like images of symphonies and music and all sorts of things from the modern world and the most touching thing to me it was truly heartwarming was when he showed them western european music like operas and these people had never heard opera before immediately don't speak the language i think it was german said she's sad mm -hmm. she's heartbroken they immediately understood what the music was trying to convey but then when they showed them images of modern warfare like you know heavy artillery guns firing off uh, shells or showed nuclear uh, blast the mushroom cloud these people looked at the filmmaker and said why do you fight like cowards killing people you can't even see and because to them it was that sort of ancient like Alexander the Great no I'm going to lead the army I'm going to run into the fray and with my cavalry the companion cavalry and take out anybody it's what made Alexander so successful is how audacious he was and not he, the courage he displayed and it probably helped that he thought he was the son of Zeus and Hercules um, literally thought that but it, it makes me step back and go well, how would somebody like Alexander use that weapon from a military standpoint it makes sense to us today it's what ended the second world war but if you're somebody who prides yourself on going into the fray seeing face to face the person you're slaying and Carlin, I think, in the Blueprint for Armageddon talks about the difference in PTSD uh, for people who were maybe in that hand-to-hand -hand combat style, which wasn't easy. Or, but the sight of blood, the sight of guts, and uh, the chattering of teeth when you're waiting at the battle lines for the, the fray to start is very different than being in the trenches in the early 1900s and you realize you're walking over human beings and your best friend was just incinerated. It's so impersonal compared to older forms of warfare and it makes me wonder, would some of these ancient people recoil from that power because it is impersonal and it didn't feed into their uh, virtues of warfare? It's almost the trap the World War II folks fell into. They thought war was going to be this great honor and this virtuous thing to do, and they end up in the meat grinder. Well, did they think that, or did they use that? They might have used it. If you're faced with a choice of fight or don't fight, do you succumb to fear, or do you put on a brave front, and then you get a bunch of smart people in a room, and you say, hey, how can we get all the people on board with this? It's those pictures of an image of Uncle Sam pointing, mm. saying, Uncle Sam wants you. If you can make people believe in, I don't want to say the virtues of war, but the virtues of your country. Your cause. The virtues of your cause, then you can make them go out and fight. You can make them lay down their lives for the virtues of the cause. And it's, um, it's amazing how much history has changed in just 100 years. I mean, we're only 100 years away from the, from the Great War the war to end all wars that didn't and you can tell people's i think mindset has changed but then that uh dilemma that dan carlin brings up are we maybe forgetting those horrors and you want to think that it's unfathomable that china and the united states would go to war i on a selfish level i don't want that of course not like i don't want to be conscripted to go fight somebody i've never met in china it sounds insane it's literally insane, and I wouldn't want to be part of it. Maybe I would have to be, though. I, w I would do it. Yeah, I, w I think I would do it at the end of the day. Depends on the 
the reasons. I mean, I I'd be really scared, but you do what you didn't can do. Yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Well, and I promise, folks, this is going to segue into discussion about Wonder Woman and Justice League. And it really does. Like, there's a scene in Wonder Woman where she walks in, and all the top generals are in the room, and you go, "There's no," and she yell, starts yelling and accosting the one uh, general at the head of the table. You're sending all these people off to die while you sit here behind the table. There's no honor in that. It's that old warrior mindset faced with modern war, the impersonal sort of modern war that sees people as uh, casualty numbers, that sees people as soldiers' role is to die. Soldiers are meant to die. That's some of the logic you're getting out of this new warfare. And it started with the Civil War, I mean, in in many ways, and the Napoleonic Wars, Um, the Russo-Sino 1905 war saw really was the real preview. Once artillery started getting involved, and I'm not talking about volleys of arrows no. or siege engines, I mean artillery. Like large shells yeah. coming from the sky produced in mass quantities from a distance of 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, a mile. Yeah. Four days on end, these artillery volleys would occur for days on end you don't know if it's going to land on you next you're just stuck and if you get up and you try and run you come across what's known as no man's land between the trenches in between the enemy and the people on your side and if you try and run they'll shoot you down with a machine gun or they'll if they do make it across they've got shotguns well and then you might find yourself safely in a bomb crater thinking I can hold that here for a few minutes. And then the gas starts to flow into the crater, and you think it's fog, you've never seen it before, and you can't breathe. And it's, you start bleeding from the inside of your body on the all the way to the outside. And it's, it's like the radiation poisoning. Like, you can't really see it. Mm-mm. You've never encountered this before, but in this brave new world, using that the way Huxley used it, it's not that wonderful. Um, but in this brave new world, things that you would never expect are coming to pass. And it is that impersonal sort of technology uh, that baffles me. And it, uh, well, it reminds me of Album of the Day in so many ways. Black Ribbons by, well, Hierophant, but it's really Shooter Jennings. And Hierophant, I guess, and this is what I love about making myths like in the modern day, like the band itself is a myth, is a, a fiction, but it serves a great purpose. And the whole album is sort of this concept album uh, with Stephen King, right? He's doing the narration. Yeah, Shooter Jennings wrote the album. He's, he's the son of Waylon Jennings. Yeah. He, he wrote the album and he sent the script to Stephen King. Stephen King read it. He fell in love with it. He said, I want to be a part of this. So he was chose as the role of the narrator who is a DJ, a radio host. And it's about the last night. He calls it the last light. The government is going to take over the airwaves. They're going to shut down free people's radio. And they're just going to blast their own virtues. And it's all about the last few minutes in that last hour before the government takes over. And it's, the album's done where it's like Stephen King talking as a radio jock would. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, now here's the next cut from the album Black Ribbons by Hero Fan. And the, the 
music works together. It's across genres, but I believe it ends with uh, When the Radio Goes Dead. And it's still one of my favorite just pieces of music. Um, I don't have the part with the lyrics here, but it is, um, it's, I think, a major accomplishment for Shooter uh, in that he had done that outlaw country for years, and he comes with this deep, eclectic concept album that it's all over the place. It was very important to you and I. Yes, very important. And uh, at the end of the day, that's what means the most. It's that folks maybe can't relate, but it's that personal thing. I can remember reading Crime and Punishment in 10th grade or 11th grade. Dostoevsky. And I remember writing in one of my papers that there's something about any sort of love, any sort of bond, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a parent and a child, that only those two people will know at the end of the day what that relationship is based on. And there's something uh, very intimate and meaningful about that. And you wish you could share it, but you can't always. It's really difficult to impart that meaning, the interpersonal meaning. Well, you can talk in vague platitudes. Well, hopefully, like that symphony to the primitive tribes, here's a little taste of music that was near and dear to Troy and I's heart. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. We'll be right back. Talk about modern warfare in the light of superhero movies, of all things. And the one thing that connects all of them the collective unconscious. Yes. Joey Clark. Joey Clark. Welcome back. Listen to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Really just want to sing these lyrics. Yeah. This is Breaking Point, the Breaking Point. Shooter Jennings and Hero Fence. The album is Black Records. If you haven't heard the whole thing, I really encourage you to listen to it. Weird synths and the bass sounds he gets. And all you go on a second place, love. Ain't no way to make you happy. The staccato on the piano in the chorus. Make me happy. And that's you. Oh, kick it into a rock song. And the next line is so good, but, um, you know, I was actually talking last week with 84, Clay Sharp, about uh, one thing H.L. Minkin said. 
is that heroic, the hero's journey. We often don't go to get to fight these sort of like uh, battles, like the Battle of Thermopylae, the Greeks and the Spartans. Like, that's not how war is anymore. It's not even how it was in Napoleon's time. It is this impersonal mass of people and bombs from miles away. And it really, uh, it, it makes me think of how you want to be pushed to uh, a breaking point. That that's what the speaker in this song is saying. That don't give me money, don't give me promises, push me to my breaking point. And one of the few things I, I think people find is that hero's journey is love or pursuing somebody. And I was, and that's what Minkin said. He said most men don't get to go on the hero's journey afar in weird, exotic lands. They don't get to be Alexander the Great, but they do usually have a love affair. And this song captures that perfectly. That don't give me money, don't give me promises you'll be true. Just push me to my breaking point. And it's sort of this need that no, I want to be pushed. I want to be challenged. I want to overcome that push and that challenge and that breaking point. I want to be tested, whether it's love or it's accomplishment and other pursuits in life. I think it's a beautiful sentiment. And it's something that I shared an article with you called Why Kids Need Heroic Adventures by Dan Sanchez. And Dan's going to be on the show tomorrow night to go into deep detail into this. Well, that's going to be a good show. Yeah, he's a, he's a fantastic writer. And I like that it's on a topic like this, that we're leaving the politics and the libertarian stuff aside for a moment, the economics aside, and talk about these archetypes. And you were immediately perceptive to, uh, with Carl Jung here, um, Dan goes on about Carl Jung and about Joseph Campbell. Talk about the psychology of mythology. Mm -hmm. And there are these things Jung described as archetypal events. Birth, death, separation from parents, initiation, marriage, the union of opposites, archetypal figures, the great mother, the great father, child, devil, God, wise old man, wise old woman, the trickster, the hero, and archetypal motifs, the apocalypse, the deluge. The creation. And, you know, you can often see that the hero's journey is about going into the unknown, going into the abyss, and Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and giving it to man. You go into that unknown, you come out on the other side of that breaking point, and you have something to show for it. And throughout this essay, Dan gives examples that Campbell and Young brought up of how these archetypes are, are going through. But you immediately jumped on an archetype you saw... And what this essay is speaking to with Justice League that we watched last night. Mm -hmm. There's a point in the movie where Barry Allen, who's known as The Flash, and Victor Stone, who's known as Cyborg, are working together to do something. I'm, I'm trying to keep it spoiler-free. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be that guy. Right. They're, they're working together to do something, and Barry, who doesn't have a lot of friends and is not very good at communicating with people, is trying to reach out to Victor and he tries it earlier in the movie with a little fist bump yeah Victor doesn't return it um, and he he looks at Victor and he, he says so were the mistakes because Barry was struck by lightning and that's how he was able to tap into what he calls the speed force and Victor was in an accident and his dad 
used something foreign on him, and it turned him into a cyborg. He gave him cybernetic implants, but what really gives him his power is that foreign object that he used to create him. So they were the mistakes. And they were able to look at each other and say, yes, we were the mistakes, but we're here now. We've got this incredible power, and we can do something about it. Well, and it, it gives them affirmation. And you were mentioning off-air for a second, you know, and you mentioned on-air that you have to kind of leave the ego aside in this world where it's sensory overload and so much information out there. You have to try to tap into the collective unconscious. And I don't think you mean, like, maybe meditation is it, but you're not, like, I am one with the Force and the Force is one with me. You're not some monk, necessarily. But by that, it's sort of look at the things that have always been true the best you can that have been true for uh, General Lufendorf in Germany, that were true for Alexander, that were true for anybody. General Graves, even. Yeah. Oppenheimer. Yeah, think about the archetypes, the things they were struggling with. And when you go back to the archetypal motifs they were talking about, that's exactly what the nuclear physicists or the scientists were struggling with. The apocalypse, the creation... We saw with the crossroads, the deluge. When you have something, when you've created something new, something so simple as smashing together radiated atoms. Right. And it creates this huge amount of energy. And at first it's theory. You're working on it with a pen and paper. And then they test it. And it works. And it's a huge explosion. The scientists saw this and they were obviously they had the question is this something that we really want to continue to pursue in the in the movie the bomb that we were talking about earlier yeah the scientists that got einstein's signature to send it to roosevelt to say we should pursue this nuclear weapon then penned another paper that said whoa <laughs> this is this is really scary you don't want to do this Really bad things can happen. History speaks for itself. We continued to pursue it. We used it twice. We were going to continue to use it. Oh, yeah. Truman said no. And then the next day, I think it was a Monday, the Japanese finally surrendered. Then we got into the, the arms race with the Soviets. But the, the thing that stood out most to me in that documentary was how the science react, the scientists and engineers reacted to this thing that they had created. And some of them asked themselves the question, do we want to continue to do this? <clears throat> and they were faced with these archetypal motifs, the apocalypse or creation. They saw the destruction that it could do. But some of them took that information, the energy that they could create, and now we have nuclear power. We have nuclear-powered vessels. We can power homes. We can use the information that we've gathered and we can create new things. We can create, I don't want to say life, but we can sustain life. We oh. can sustain the types of life that we're used to living. Well, and this is coming with uh, genetic engineering. And it's near the cusp of, we're on the cusp again of that. And the word keeps coming up. Uh, but where people can truly edit their genetic code, their DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what you're looking for is a technology called CRISPR. Yeah. All caps, C-R-I-S-P-R. 
if you're interested in researching it, I would encourage you to do so. It's fascinating technology. Some of our politicians disagree, but I think that's because the people that are influencing them are saying that they should. Right. Well, and they're, it, but I think those people struggling with the new tech are going through the same thing the scientists went through when they create uh, the atom bomb. And first, there's this sense of accomplishment. Like, oh, we did it. We we did it. And then it might even take weeks or months or years, but later on, these scientists are going, oh, man, what did we unleash? And instead of despairing, because I think most people would say, I wish there were no uh, thermonuclear weapons. I wish we could put closed Pandora's box again. Um, put the cats out of the bag. The and box is open. The box is open. And we have to deal with it. In so many ways, this is what um, superhero movies are all about these days. And people have their, all these different interpretations, but I think the reason superhero movies are popular, yeah, and the box office isn't it's slumping from what it was. At least with the Justice League. Marvel's franchises are knocking it out of the park. And so what these superhero movies deal with is people with extraordinary abilities or maybe discovering new technology... And so one thing I think Vision says in Captain America Civil War is that when strength invites strength. Mm -hmm. That when you create uh, something so powerful, it will invite a competitor. And in many ways, that's what happened with the Soviet Union. Stalin had a spy, Fuchs, or whatever his name was. Was he that had, Los he Alamos? Had, he had two spies. Uh, Fuchs was a German scientist, or physicist, rather, who came from England. And they wanted to vet because we asked the British for their help um, because we were having trouble with plutonium because it would take years to get fuel for the bombs from uranium. That's why we only had one or two uranium bombs. So we, we tried plutonium and we figured it would melt the, the bomb type that we were trying to create. So we asked the British for help and they sent over a bunch of chaps, yeah. if you will. No need to check their security clearances. They said, yeah, they said... We, we already vetted him. You're fine. Well, yeah. it turns out one of the Germans that they sent over was a guy named Fuchs. And his entire family was communists. And he was reporting back to the Soviet Union. And this other younger man, he was a college student. I can't recall his name. He was also reporting back to the Soviet Union. And so they were able to learn from our mistakes by simply not making them. Well, in the Soviets, and it's interesting to me, you can justify, I suppose, uh, the A-bomb or nuclear weapons in geopolitical terms. If we don't have them, that's the only way it can be justified, in my mind. Uh, but it's interesting, despite all those justifications, whether it's the bombs dropped on Japan or why we need to increase the arms race with the Soviet Union, the effect on people individually, personally... And they start to feel these archetypal motifs and these deep things in the collective unconscious. Like the guys I confirmed with my grandfather, he worked, I think in the late 60s and 70s, with uh, the Navigator on the Enola Gay at SAC headquarters in Nebraska. And he said he was not a happy man. And there are stories that when the crew of the Enola Gay looked back, they said, my God, what have we done? Similarly, uh, the guy, the pilot for the Russians, who dropped the largest bomb ever created by man, the Tsar Bomba, mm -hmm. uh, he retired after that flight, correct? He, uh, I've done enough from the motherland, I'm done. Yeah, especially when you're faced with 
the destruction that a bomb that big can create. Yeah, 50 megatons, which higher than that? I believe so. We might want to double check that. Yeah, the Tsar Bomba, and it, it got to the point where it was just for show. Like, if you're going to have 50 megatons or however uh, big it was, uh, why didn't you just drop, like, a few 10 megaton or 15 megaton? Like, why do you need a 50 megaton that ne- the bomb itself needs an umbrella on it so the pilot can get away from the blast radius? Uh, 50, you're right. Yeah, 50 megatons of TNT. Oh, it was dropped on my birthday. Oh, crap. That's one of those weird dreamlike moments. It really is. It's almost surreal. Fortunately, it was many, many years before I was born. Before you came into the world. Uh, yeah. I wasn't even a twinkle in people's eye. <laughs> and so I look at these like, I couldn't help it. With all the stuff I've been reading about mythology, about ancient history, about recent history and the new brave new world with our technologies we're trying to make moral sense of as i'm watching justice league last night i couldn't shut off that part of my brain and i thought it's a shame that tragedy snuck, or struck Zack snyder at that time i thought it was a bit of an uneven movie but all the themes are there mm-hmm. and put beautifully put uh, and i have to hand it to snyder in that way like he's grabbing from the mythological side of things he's also grappling with new technologies and it's where a lot of people are going to make sense of the world how can we take what's old and reflect on what's new with what's old maybe some of that ancient wisdom is in fact wise it isn't these people weren't primitive people who just believed in zeus they actually were getting at there's a reason they believed in zeus and athena and all these gods is because it helped make sense of the world and maybe there's something in those stories. Maybe there's something in the stories of the, of the Bible, of uh, in the Judaism's traditions, and any world tradition that can help you understand. And uh, it's what Oppenheimer went to, the Hindu text. said, uh, Vishnu, destroyer of worlds. And that's how he made sense of that, that almost anguish he's feeling. What have I created? Like, and it's amazing that a text that ancient is really the only thing that Oppenheimer could find as a bit of a poet as well as a scientist to make sense of what he was thinking in the moment. And there's something very unbeautiful that about that, and it um, it gives credence to this idea of the collective unconscious. It's it's a lot easier to look for answers than it is to create them. Hmm. And searching for answers whether it be an ancient text, recent text, going through these archetypes. If you can find something there that you can hold on to, something that gives you meaning, then it helps create a path of how to move forward. Absolutely. Well, I, you mentioned something, but we're out of time. So we'll maybe address it next Monday. But why you pulled out of social media? Like, I think it's fascinating. People who are either very successful online... Or people decide, I can't take this anymore. Like, what's the experience like that led you to that? What's And I've loved talking to folks who have either pulled the plug or they have this huge success so they get all sorts of incoming, whether in their inbox or comment section. So, uh, Troy, thank you for being here tonight. This was fun. Always a pleasure, my man. I'll see you next Monday. Do it to it. Ain't Good show. Good show. To make you Joey Clark. And that's you.